Brain for Business podcast with me, Lauren Snell, where we take the lessons from evidence-based academic research, most particularly involving the brain, behavioral and organizational sciences, and translate them in a way that is accessible for leaders and organizations. As always, make sure to follow us on Twitter at brain for biz and LinkedIn, or else we look forward to your feedback and comments by email to laurie at brainforbusiness.ie. In a 2019 article published in Business Horizons, our guest today on the Brain for Business podcast, Dr. Adrian Klammer, together with colleagues Thomas Grissold and Stefan Grudenberg, argued that organizations need to introduce a stop doing culture. But what is a stop doing culture and what does it mean for leaders and their organizations? Originally from Austria, Adrian has a doctorate in business economics from the University of Liechtenstein and is affiliated with the Liechtenstein Business School. Adrian's academic research is focused on organizational unlearning and learning in different contexts, especially innovation, organizational change and organizational development. Adrian has published widely in top-tier journals, including Harvard Business Review, California Management Review, Business Horizons, Management Learning, Industrial Marketing Management, Journal of Knowledge Management, International Journal of Innovation Management, European Journal of Innovation Management. Adrian, welcome to Brain for Business. Hi there. Thanks for having me. To start with, what is a stop-doing culture? Well... We use this term originally to to describe organizations that that are aware that they cannot learn perpetually, right? So there, there's a limit to what you can do, what you can learn, what knowledge you can absorb and, and take into your organization. So it's pretty much a label that that we that we use to describe exactly these organizations. And in such organizations, what we see is um, that that critical thinking and, and scrutinizing the status quo is is allowed, right? And, and it's not, a, not only allowed, but even encouraged and culturally embedded. And that's what, that, that's what we label a, a stop doing culture um, to kind of describe this cultural trait of a, of a business. It's about critically scrutinizing even well-proven aspects of a business. Okay, so it's about consciously and constantly asking, is this something we, we still need to be doing? Maybe we should be doing other things. Maybe we need to just put certain things aside. Is that fair? Exactly. And and you have a lot of different examples. And we all know the big examples, right? Like Kodak and, and um, Blockbuster or even Nokia, if you want. You can argue that they keep doing things for way too long, right? So if you look at, if you look at Kodak, for example, they, they have invented the digital camera or a previous model of it, but decided, or at least top management decided not to pursue it because what are they? They, they were a photography company and what they actually made money of was, was the, the, these film roles, right? So you can even argue that they are chemical or a company in the chemistry business. And maybe you can compare it to an espresso today. So you sell those coffee machines and you lock your customers in with those capsules. If that's uh, one of your cash cows, then you don't probably you don't want to let go. I was even had the chance to talk to one of the top managers and, and he said, Kodak at this stage was, was like a, a, a big oil tanker and this metaphor fits kind of because they weren't able to to steer the big ship around so 
but the, the idea is that you shouldn't be doing things for too long just because you don't want to critically scrutinize them. I guess building on some of those examples you gave and thinking more broadly, we can all think about, say, a, you know, as you said, a Kodak where they, they stuck with one particular form mm. or way of doing business for too long and ultimately suffered. And, and obviously there, there are going to be many examples throughout history, but on a more general level, are there particular things that organizations and the people within them generally need to, to think about stop doing? Is it about the way they do things? Is it about how they do things? Is it about where they look for new inspiration? That's a tough one because um, <laughs> it encompasses really all of it, what you just said, right? Every little knowledge item, every process, every every kind of cultural trait can be scrutinized, right? So the, the organization needs, or even people within organizations, they really need to, to um, think about what aspect of the business is no longer desired or maybe even harmful, right, to the business. So, and, and we see two big, two big um, aspects in this regard. One is cognition and how people in organizations perceive information. And that's very much culturally embedded. Um, if you look at Edgar Schein, who says, and, and I quite like this because it's you can relate to it, that culture is the way people do things around here. And when it comes to this, people often fail to scrutinize the status quo and how they perceive information. And the second one is behaviors, right? How things are done and, and, and routines and the habits and not thinking about stuff while performing your work. And this obviously translate, translates into business models, it translates into strategies, into overarching processes. So it, it can be very superficial, like how do I arrange my desk at work? <laughs> but it also can be um, deeply culturally embedded, right? And really thinking about how people do stuff around here. So it, it's it's a broad range of, of what particularly organizations and people within organizations need to stop doing. So it, it's, it's a tough one. So mm. I think there's a lot about reducing complexity in there. So make, make things as simple as possible. I guess the question that, that comes to mind when you were talking through that is, is on a certain level, it's easy to see that maybe a process is inefficient or may, maybe at the time it was created or put into place, it was the best way, but now there are new ways of doing things and they're more efficient, more effective. But if we think perhaps about organizations on a more strategic level, and as we saw with Kodak, it can be really, really hard to pick the winners, if you like, compared to say Nestle who took a different path. How can that be done? Is it about you know leaders being leaders and showing judgment? Are there particular kind of analytical tools, or is it a way of just sort of sensing and feeling your way into the future? I think it can be a little bit both. I think there it has really a lot to do with sensing and seizing, and, and but you can also I think do it more structured or analytically. Two or three years ago. Some researchers from, from, I think it was University of Virginia or something, they, they did a very small um, experiment on subtractive learning. And what they found is that people tend to add stuff, right? If they have to change or if they have to adapt or if a process is inefficient, 
they first look at, okay, what can we add to make it more efficient? And that might not always be the best way to go forward because sometimes you, you first have to ask yourself, okay, what do we need to stop doing? What, what do we need to take away? What do we need to subtract? So it's a little bit what you just said. Um, it can be this sensing aspect of it, but it can also be done a little bit more structured. If you just sit together, talk about stuff, discuss different issues, discuss processes, what's working well, what do we need to let go of, why, what does our environment look like? So you, you can achieve a lot by asking the right questions. The thought that is percolating through my mind as well is, is this something which is distinctive of so the complexity of, of doing too much and the need to to stop doing things is that typical of certain types of organizations so you know we obviously we talked there about say nestle and kodak you know they they were and they are well maybe not kodak massive corporations with lots of different stakeholders lots of different customers all looking for different things and so if you stop doing one thing then that's going to upset a certain group of customers, for, for example. But then equally, I can think of, for example, a, a government body or a government department that you know might have certain programs or policies in place, and they may wish to stop doing them because they don't necessarily add a huge amount of value. Yet you're going to have certain members of the community, members of the public who say, we want that. You can't simply stop. So is it typical of certain types of organizations, so the bigger rather than smaller, or, or maybe commercial versus, say, government public sector bodies? Yeah, that's a good question. To be honest, I haven't really looked into, into the public sector, but obviously I can imagine that they have to provide value to the public they're owned by the government so they have clear path of what they should provide right mm. but if if we are in the market i think there's a different picture and what we see is that a lot of it if, if organizations are willing to unlearn <clears throat> or not hinges upon managers if managers are not willing to change or adapt or be flexible for whatever reason, you cannot really introduce change in the entire organization. And that's something that we found. And William Starbucks says actually that, that one, of, one of the main ways to unlearn is to change top management. So if you want to have change, then you should fire top management because they're somehow their managerial cognition about the organization, about the environment, about the market often seems very rigid. And I, I can kind of understand that managers have, um, have, have had different experiences, different leadership styles. So if you really want to introduce change and lead, really want to unlearn something in the organization, a way to go forward is to to fire top management, and it's it's very it's a very harsh way of saying okay, um, management decides what's going on, and if they're not willing to to change themselves, then the organization might be in trouble. Yeah. So it's it seems harsh, but I, I think he has a point. <laughs> I, I can see that too, because I guess on a certain level, management might be 
deeply invested in the current priorities, the current programs, the current products and services offered, say, in a commercial business, because maybe they've sold that vision to the board or to shareholders or who, whoever, and so they can't simply stop it. But it also reminds me of, of a conversation I had with someone uh, a number of years ago. I was doing some some research of my own into innovation uh, in, in Ireland, and this person said to me that in in their particular organization, you weren't allowed to come up with new ideas because coming up with new ideas meant you were implicitly criticizing the existing idea. And who came up with the existing idea? Well, chances are it was top management. So. If you criticized or came up with a new idea, you are criticizing the existing idea and implicitly, therefore, criticizing management. So it was the end of your career, essentially, if you if you did anything like that. So I can see how, from that perspective, you know, Starbucks' idea of pulling out top management and replacing them might add value. I I, I completely agree, and and that's that's actually a good example. But yeah, well, it depends, and and I think managers can. And I know that manager are invested in a lot of different things and and should care about the entire organization and and have to make decisions and they should be sound and and safe. So I can understand that management doesn't really have the time to sit down and critically think about the business from scratch, but managers can still somehow create some kind of mechanisms to allow their employees do that mm. and and that's that that may be something that that we get, get into later but the idea of top management being one of the barriers to to <laughs> unlearning is is definitely there if, if we move on a little bit you, you mentioned the term unlearning there and it's a, it's a curious kind of term because a lot of the focus in, I, I guess, the last 30, perhaps even 40 years has actually been more on organizational learning. You know, there was Peter Senge's book, The Fifth Discipline. How does unlearning fit with, with learning? Is it about creating space for new learning or is it something different? Good question. And, and I completely agree. A lot of a lot of research has been on on how organizations create knowledge, how they absorb it, how they transfer it, how they acquire it, how they build it, and and we try to look at the other side, right? uh, and it's about how organizations let go of knowledge, how they discard it, how they how they shed knowledge, and and the the most important word here, I think, is intention, and. We think that unlearning is something that that is, is is intentional. So there is awareness that something might harmful, that some knowledge structures are undesired, and that's what we look at. We look at those instances where organizations intentionally discard knowledge. And I like Seng's book, and it's been a while since I've read it, to be honest. But I think he has those five points. And when I think about it, for example, I think one of them is mental models. And mental models is, is just what, what we also see with, with the cognition and how we perceive information and how we build our mental models and how we look at the world. And I think there's a lot of, even if it's implicit, there's a lot of unlearning in there as well if you want to change mental models. Same with some kind, I think there was team learning in there or something. Mm. 
if you look at dialogue and, and how you want to unearth different perspectives and talk about different problems and different different ways of seeing things. And I think there's a lot of unlearning there implicitly, but obviously it, it's about how organizations learn. And, and we see that also in our research. If we talk about unlearning and letting things go, then our interview partners often become very passive because obviously to unlearn something is, is not good in an organizational context. And um, so we, we have to work around that, that wording a little bit. Well, it's interesting you said that the, the people you interviewed through that research became more, more passive. And, and I can imagine they may also possibly become a bit defensive. I've, I've spent years studying this, learning this, going on training courses, qualifying, whatever it might be, in order to get this. And now you're saying I have to get rid of it. But if we think about the broader trends in society at the moment, and I'm thinking particular of technology, artificial intelligence, is unlearning actually going to become more important for some people and some organizations? That's that's a very good question. It might be more important to for some organizations or people than for others. But what we see, or at least what we feel, or that's that's my way of seeing things, it's the heightened frequency in terms of the introduction of technological changes such as AI or whatever, but it, it becomes this this idea of unlearning and learning and, and, and change becomes most obvious during paradigm shifts, right? For example, take painting and photography mm. or take, um, well, the earth has been flat for the last thousand years and now it's a globe. So when we see and, and experience and observe those paradigm shifts, then unlearning becomes pretty obvious because you can see how people need to adapt from one place to the other. But I think you can find unlearning in, in every line of work, even if it's volatile or more monotone. I think one of the, one of the statements that are probably accurate and true in this question is that people that are good at both learning and unlearning are more flexible to and, and adaptive to change. So, I think it's about how you how you deal with the frequency and the depth of changes. And I think you can see unlearning in all professions and all processes and all people. We, we've been talking quite a bit about perhaps the, the benefits of unlearning of a, of a stop doing culture. But you know, are there any downsides that you could highlight? You know, for example, is there a risk that if you are unlearning something as a i guess an individual but particularly as an organization that that tacit knowledge that sort of i guess historical understanding of, of of where we've come from and what we used to do and how we've got to this point might just disappear if people focus very much on the unlearning aspect oh definitely definitely i'm not saying that that unlearning is the way to go forward or unlearning is is all organizations should do. I know unlearning is not easy because you've mm. just mentioned it before. People invest a lot of time into learning new things, into getting acquainted with different processes in organizations. Um, they might even invest emotions when things are not going well, but they have to do something. And obviously, this, this aspect of stabilization and routinization in organizations is very important, right? Because you want to be efficient. 
you want to be effective you want to you want your employees to be to feel safe in their uh, working environment right so i understand that unlearning is not easy but on the other side sometimes you just have to critically think about what you're doing right and what you mentioned with with losing tasks and knowledge is also something that we see might be very harmful as well because when you look at experienced employees that have been with the organizations for very long they know they know a lot of the projects they know a lot of people they know who knows what so i think that that organizations should keep this core this historical core and and maybe even this cultural core of where they came from but that doesn't mean that they can't scrutinize themselves and what we also see is when we talk to organizations that when we t- when we tell them to okay you might need to unlearn something and then it just says okay so what's going to happen with the knowledge what's going to mm. happen with what we've done so far and they don't just throw it away what they try to do is they they try to document it as as, as well as possible and they try to store it somewhere so if in case something needs to be accessed again they just can pull it out and and look at it again but this this tacit aspect of knowledge loss is very important yeah i can imagine that that the, the lack of that or the absence or the disappearance of that would hamper future growth or lead to people pursuing opportunities that really they shouldn't ha- have pursued and, and and wiser more experienced heads which had some insight into certain things might have said, actually, (laughs) we have tried this and these are why we don't do that. Right, right. Researchers, that they have a different term for it in management research. Um, At least some of them, they call it forgetting. And forgetting is, well, the, the unintentional part of knowledge loss. So if organizations don't want to lose knowledge, but they lose knowledge. So the, the key word here again is, is intention. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it is that, as you said, the unlearning, which might be a more conscious process versus forgetting, which can be very much as happens to all of us in normal daily life, an unconscious process. Right. In practical terms, then, what do you feel that organizations can actually do to develop a greater focus perhaps on unlearning and also to to reframe their culture more as a stop doing culture as you term it yeah obviously it's it's about finding ways to think critically about existing embedded cognitive structures and and routines and we've done research in a lot of different areas and i think there are three yeah three main points that somehow become evident in different organizations. And the first one is creating awareness and being aware that something needs to be changed, that something doesn't work anymore. And this has a lot to do with communication. So you need to somehow communicate, even if it's either top down or bottom up or middle to both ways or whatever you want, but somehow you need to find ways to communicate that some knowledge items or processes or whatever can be potentially harmful or are not desired anymore. And this can be just because they are harmful per se, but this can also mean that if you want to have a new process or you want to have new knowledge, then 
existing parts might be incompatible with the new knowledge, right? So we have to let go of it. The second one is the use of space and time. Just imagine sitting at the same table 40 hours a week, looking into this, this, the same screen over and over again, having the same people around you. It kind of drags you into complacency, into stagnation, into rigidity. So making use of space and time, like just rearranging office spaces, going for a walk, designating time to do something else or whatever can be a very efficient way to start scrutinizing and and thinking critically. And the third one is making sure that discarded knowledge doesn't creep back into the organization. So you have to make sure that the knowledge that you've unlearned stays out and you constantly have to reinforce the new, right? You have to you have to show the benefits of the new ways of doing things. So I think those three points if if you if you think about how you can how you can achieve them then I think there's great potential to to unlearn. And I guess the fourth point to add to that would be, as we earlier discussed, Starbucks' point of getting rid of top management and, and completely <laughs> yeah. reorganizing the organization. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that's that's one way of doing it, doing it as well. <laughs> um, might be a bit radical, but but yeah, we can also see that in organizations, definitely. And it's interesting, the point you make there about space and time, it reminds me of uh, some conversations I had with the, the innovation hub of a major international consultancy. And the office is consciously designed so that every table is on wheels and the lifts, the elevators in, are big enough that you can move your table into the lift and go up to a different floor and sit in a different place with different colleagues. And the idea is that it enables flexibility when you're moving between different projects but I think it also creates that opportunity for people to shift out of a particular physical and spatial rut based on where they're sitting and what they're doing yeah yeah exactly I have another example from uh, from my research and there's this world market leader in building cable cars and what they've done is they've they wanted to have a, a kind of a radical innovation and so they decided they, they built this team and they go off the premises um, to some different location for an entire year. So 52 weeks, one day a week to a place where they have no access to internet, to, to phones or whatever, um, to really get them to think from scratch. And I'm not saying that they built the perfect product, but they came up with some pretty good ideas that were used for for new innovations and and from what i hear is that this product has has really good uh, has had a really good impact in terms of being in the market being um, innovative so that's another example of how you can use time and space to to create something new and to be innovative if people wanted to find out more about your research uh, adrian is there anywhere particularly you could suggest that you should go hit me up on linkedin google scholar uh university homepage email me whatever uh, i'm i'm up to to any kind of shenanigans and even if you want to talk about <laughs> just talk about unlearning or change or whatever just um write me an email and i'll try to get back to you 
Well, that sounds great. And I'll make sure to put uh, a link to your uh, LinkedIn page in the uh, in the show notes. Perfect. Dr. Adrian Klama, thank you very much for your time. It's been great speaking to you. Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it.